Inomine Cinema e TV e Spiritus Streaming. Amen. What's up, Hollywood Faithful? This is J.R. Zamorthal. And Megan Dane here. We're so happy you're joining us for another episode of The Hollywood Confessional. Now, as you all know, we're in week five of the writer strike. There is a picketing schedule available on the WGA website if you'd like to join the lines, WGA.org, big banner on the front page. I'm out there pretty much every day, so hit me up. Let me know if you're coming. Meanwhile, J.R. is our secret spy. Behind enemy lines. Dude, it's not enemy lines. <laughs> I work for a writer. I know. I just really wanted He's to say that. He's led us on the picket line. <laughs> uh, all right. Hollywood Confessional now featuring fake news. But you could be a spy, though. I mean, I would totally buy it. Um, but I'll take that. <laughs> but seriously, there's been a lot of conversation both on our show and in the media at large and on social media about support staff being laid off. And uh, we have a confession about that coming up next time, but I blabbed on about the picket lines. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about what you're living. Obviously, with the writer's strike, our whole schedule came to a screeching halt. I mean, it was like a car crash. One day we're driving down the highway. The next thing you know, we're upside down and not moving. We were at a complete halt, but, you know, still disoriented. So it took some time to figure that out. Yeah. Do you feel like you guys are kind of getting into a new groove or? I do. I feel like the new rhythm is emerging and that new rhythm includes being on the picket line some days, which is just really, really nice. I think yeah. I need that emotional boost just to go to the picket line. One, feel like I'm doing something good. And two, just being with other writers and we're, we're all fighting for the cause together. Yeah, that's right. And uh, speaking of writers, this week, our confession is from a writer who experienced incredible success right out of the gate with their career, but then started to feel like a product that just wasn't selling anymore. So it's called How to Be Human in Hollywood Without Really Trying. You ready to get into it? Let's hit the booth. Forgive me, Father, for I let this job convince me that I had no value as a man. I am so sorry. How did this all begin? My story actually begins with success. I was in my late 20s. I was married, had a child. I had been on a different career path, and then I discovered that I really loved writing. So I went to grad school for that. A sure path to success, if there ever was one. (laughs) While I was in grad school, I was encouraged to take a TV writing class as an elective. I'd never thought about writing for TV, but I tried it, and I fucking loved it. TV has a narrative drive in a way that's unlike anything else. The ability to create a universe is so exciting. There are other genres that are great for original thought, but TV is so yummy. You just want to keep eating, like, I have to stay up till 4am and watch this whole series tonight. It's a version of storytelling that takes over your life. So did it take over your life? Well, at first I was a little afraid. I've always been centered in being a really loving dude. The type of person who makes people feel valued for who they are. But I was raised in an environment where TV was a big part of why people felt like there was something wrong with them. Which has teeth. I mean, leave it to Beaver. Everybody grows up like, why don't I have a family like that? It's like, nobody has a family like that. That's not a family. But TV makes people feel like, why don't I have that? So I was scared to become part of an industry that could potentially make people feel like that. 
I also thought LA was a place where everybody wanted you to write about big titted vampires. <laughs> Do we not want that? Well, I thought notes meetings were where you were like, I'm trying to portray something interesting and human. And the execs were like, can we get some more tits and vampires? <laughs> but my own experiences turned out to be totally different. I took that class. I came up with an idea for a pilot. I met a manager, told him about my idea, and he said, that sounds good. So we started developing it together. Oh my God. So simple. It was great. I fucking loved it. One of the things that really turned me on about TV is there's a culture where you're talking about ideas, saying what you actually think. There's this robust engagement that I find so alluring of people that really want to know what the story is about and tell that story really, really well. We're going to spend millions of dollars on your imagination is the most incredible thing that anyone could ever say to me. And after I developed the pilot with my manager, that's exactly what happened. He introduced me to an agent at and we sold it. What? That's amazing. It was so good. But then it came time to make decisions. The idea was based on a short story. So the first decision point was, do you want to say it was based on this story? I could have said it wasn't. The plot was different. The characters were different. But it was based on that story. It, it was. So I was like, well, it's just a short story. Let's get the rights. Then it turns out owned the rights to that short story. Oh, no. I was like, it's over. We're finished. But my manager said, no, we'll just write to And I was like, what? <laughs> For me? <laughs> You're going to be Like, are you kidding me? Like, just the idea that you would reach out to this person who'd made all this content I loved and respected, and that person agreed that this idea was a good idea, and that my manager had the belief in me to write to that high-level person and say, I have the right adaptation of that material. Oh my God, it, it blew my mind. But it turned out that was just the first very small step. I was told very little. I knew my team was trying to get the rights. Something was going on, but I didn't know what it was. I began to feel like I was a horse that was being traded. I could tell in calls with my agent and manager that this was not the first call today that they were both on. They were having lots of conversations about lots of horses, and I was just one of them. After a very long time, it seemed like several years, but it might have only been a year, we didn't get the rights. But that was okay. As a storyteller, I identify as a guy who has an infinite well of ideas and doesn't get attached to them. I was like, okay, I'll come up with more pitches. And I did. And they were successful. Who are you? (laughs) Over the next four to five years, I sold two pilots and two movies, all on pitches. One in the room. One in the room. Oh, my God. The big muckety mucks stood up and were like, we're buying it. (laughs) And in the end, none of them got made. And on some level, I had to face the fact that I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd had one TV class as an elective. TV is very hard. We sit in a room for 10, 12 hours, breaking an act maybe in one day. And that's with people who've been doing it for years and are wicked smart. I was on my own. I didn't know anybody in TV, didn't know anybody I could ask for advice. So I tried to have my manager help me learn, but I realized afterward that being vulnerable to talent rips is a big mistake. The thing that was so exciting to my reps was that I was a piece of property that might have value. But the thing that's terrifying about being a piece of property is that nobody cares how you feel. You need to maintain the idea that you're a valuable piece of property. I sort of felt like, as a writer, my feelings are my value. Like, 
being messy is cool, but it's not, or it wasn't for me. I've had that exact same experience. I never really articulated it that way to myself. I just sort of instinctively learned over time to hide everything. Like, act like you're always hot. People want you. Everything's great. Yeah, but then it's like, you're not supposed to be a human. You're just supposed to be a product. Which is so weird. Because the kind of work I hope to make and the work I'm so encouraged to see has some market value is about humans being complicated. That's where you want to pull the fish from. But this town is full of shit, and that means to survive, we also have to be full of shit. Which is not a super exciting life lesson to walk away with. What made things even more complicated for me at the time was that my wife and I had just had our first kid. So it was a period of real transformation, switching from dude to dad. That's a mighty caterpillar to butterfly. It also put a lot more pressure on me to be financially successful. Luckily, my sales success made me very appealing to universities. I had a great personal narrative. Hey, I took a TV course and it changed my life. So I started teaching a TV writing class. I'm a good teacher. I love it. I try to create an environment where people feel free to be vulnerable and give them permission to explore their curiosity. I try to stay centered in my values. So I did well as a teacher, but it doesn't pay. So I also had to get another job as a waiter. Oh my God. I became terrified that some of my students were going to come in. I had some Walter White action going on where I'm sort of scared my kids are going to see me at the car wash. (laughs) Functionally, I'm going in to teach and talking about being a successful writer, which I am. I'm selling stuff, but I'm terrified that people are going to come into the restaurant and see, oh, I guess you're not that successful after all. I was also supporting the life of a small child, but... That doesn't matter. I was internalizing the idea that what matters most is that you appear successful. Oh, wow. This is tough. Through all this, I'm still so turned on by TV writing. I'm just like, God, get me in the room. I'm staying up until 4 a.m. watching TV going, this is so dope. I really wanted to staff because I wanted to get better, and I didn't see how I was going to get better on my own. So I told my reps, I really want to be staffed. I think that's what I need in my career. And my agent told me I was unstaffable. Wait a second. What? Why would your agent say that? I don't want to say it because it makes me look like a whiny baby with privilege. I don't want to whine about it, but she said I was unstaffable because I was a straight white male. Pause for a second. This is just a lazy excuse for an agent that doesn't know how to sell their client. Agents have to be able to get their client in the room, and getting a staff writer on staff for the first time is a hard job. So if they don't have an easy story to tell, it might be a little difficult for them. But telling a writer that they're unstaffable because they're white is lazy and wrong, and it does a disservice to all people everywhere. I'm sick of this narrative getting propagated because it pits white staff writers against their counterparts of color. Amen. And like I said, your agent is patently false. She was being a fuck. Agents are blowing this shit, and it's hurting people of color. They're blaming us unnecessarily because it's obviously not fucking true. Also, there are straight-up statistics. Sociologists exist. They study this. I continue to be wildly overrepresented in almost all areas where we represent people. So I didn't think what my agent was saying was right. I told my manager I wanted to look for a new agent, and that's when shit got really weird. At the time, I had a project in development. It hadn't sold, but I was working on a pitch and a script with a production company, and I was excited about it. And my manager was like, okay, do it. Leave your agent and I will find you a new agent. So I did. And he did nothing to find me a new agent. And then he said, 
I don't really like this project you're working on. And over time, that turned into... I got you a big agency agent and you fired her. That's a bad look. A really bad look. And they started saying all sorts of weird, ugly stuff. Like, for one project that sold and then didn't go early on, they were like... Well, they didn't know what they wanted. And I really believed that. Now it was like... You didn't exactly hit that one out of the park. And when I said I wasn't happy with my agent and I wanted to set some meetings at a new agency, they were like... You never really had an agent. What the hell? I was like, what do you mean I never had an agent? I sold three projects! I paid a motherfucker! What do you mean? Are you just trying to hurt my feelings? What's going on? I could feel this slighting happening, and it was terrifying. Then, my wife became pregnant with our second kid. That was a huge financial pressure, because at some point, we had to be okay with her having no income. That's how our family worked. I tried to share that with my manager, believing that being yourself, human, and vulnerable is good. And they were like, now we've got you. You're going to work so hard now. You're going to make us so much money. I was like, no problem. I'll make pitches. I came up with so many pitches. And I started getting feedback that was just like, nope, don't like it. No flesh on it. I got into a place of desperation. Feed the baby, solve the problem. There was a quicksand quality to it. Finally, after yet another pitch got shot down, I said, fuck it. I really love this one. Could you say a little more about what you don't like about it? And he was like, I don't think I'm doing anything for you right now. I think we should split ways. I was like, that fucking sucks, dude. Because I don't know anybody. I'm now at the height of being convinced that vulnerability is a turnoff and you have to sell yourself as a success. And I don't know how to portray this experience as a success. This whole time, all I wanted was to be writing and to be learning about this thing I love so much. I just wanted to get in a fucking room. So I was like, fuck it. I'd been told that being an assistant is not the way to go. It's underselling yourself. There's no real path there. But I was like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of people you meet that are successful were once assistants. So I decided I'm going to try as hard as I can to get a job as a Hollywood assistant. The writer-showrunner Glenn Mazzara treated about this whiny, straight white guy thing. He said a lot of white people don't have any hustle in them because of generational privilege. And I was like, he might be right. I might be blind to the wind at my back. I might be a whiny bitch. So I'm going to hustle my fucking ass off. So I did. I tried for years to get a job as a writer's assistant. Failed. Then was offered a job as a script coordinator. I said, yes, absolutely. What's a script coordinator? (laughs) (laughs) For those of you following along at home, a script coordinator is a support staff position in a writer's room. Your job is basically to publish every script that comes out. And that comes with a lot of responsibility because the way in which scripts get published can sometimes be complicated depending on which pages have been updated since the last draft, who's supposed to get these pages, and questions about distribution. Yeah, like all respect to script coordinators, it is an incredibly technical, difficult job. And I would say maybe like 0.01% of people in Hollywood actually know what it is. They're more engineers than I ever was. (laughs) But at the same time, it's critically important. Like, it's the only way that information gets disseminated to people in a production so that we all know what movie or what TV show we're making on what day. And of more importance for us, it's a foot in the door to the writer's room. Right. And I wanted that so bad, I had to pay someone to teach me that. I paid somebody to teach me how to be a script coordinator. And I took the job really seriously. 
First show I was on after several seasons, I was told there was no opportunity for me to move up. So I took another job. And then another one. I still don't know what a script coordinator does that impresses somebody and makes them want to hire someone as a writer, but the show I'm on now has been my best experience so far. I think I'm finally working for people that see us as humans. Back when I was a working writer, I became convinced that I was a product, a brand, and then they told me my brand was unstaffable straight white male. And I got so caught up in that that for a while, I lost touch with my creative voice. For a while, as a script coordinator, I just didn't say anything at all. But now I'm working for good people on The showrunner cried on Zoom once. He cried. That's someone who believes that vulnerability is valuable. Like, he's a human being and he sees all of us in the room as people. We have real conversations about the story. To me, there's something so awesome about that. It's a little deflating sometimes. I'm always wondering if I'll get promoted. But at the end of the day, all I want to do is make another idea. And another one. And another one. I finally feel like I'm in a place where I'm creative with other creatives. There's a robust engagement with ideas and what makes the ideas better. That's what TV is really good at. Everyone's sharing honest and complicated ideas about who they are that turn into storytelling. That's beautiful. Every career has ups and downs, and sometimes it feels like you're taking a big step back. But even when that happens, it can actually be an emotional, artistic step forward. Right. You've taken a step towards being seen as a whole person. And I think that's what we're really all after in this crazy town. Thank you so much for letting yourself be vulnerable and human with us. Go create in peace, my child. Okay, lots to unpack in that episode. Yeah, there really is. You want to go first? About the unstaffable thing? Yeah, I mean, you got pretty fired up. I mean, rightfully so. I did. I did. I mean, that is one of the most infuriating things that I hear regularly and even from friends in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. These agents are lying to people. And instead of telling someone straight up, your work didn't make the cut, they're making it about race because it's not as easy for white people to staff as it used to be. And that's only because it used to be that only white people were staffing. Yeah, that's right. To the people in power, equity looks like disenfranchisement. And to perpetuate that feeling is so wrong and infuriating. And it's especially infuriating to me because it's perpetuated down to friends of mine who I've known forever and never expressed a racist thought until they finally feel free because they're hearing it from people above them and they think it's reality. It's wow. it's truly, truly hurtful. Yeah. It's a great point you're making about sort of how toxicity filters down and people making excuses for themselves and blaming others for situations they don't know how to handle ends up creating this whole toxic environment that we're all like now we're all breathing this in all day, every day. Right. And as it filters down, the people that are down today are going to be up tomorrow. And that toxicity has another chance to filter back down and the cycle continues. It's awful. Yeah. But, you know, that's just one of the issues that made this confession feel so close to home. Right. Um, man, there's just so much in it. I mean, there's the life of a support staffer and um, the fact that this confessor couldn't make enough money teaching to support a family of three and had to become a waiter. Maybe we should be doing another spinoff. Academia confessional. Yeah. And we'd be inundated with stories. I actually heard from somebody on the picket line the other day that she was teaching at a very 
highly respected film school that we would have to bleep if I mentioned it. And I mean, this is a place where people pay like $40,000 a semester to go to school. And she was making $3,500 a class. Wow. Quick back of the envelope calculation. I mean, a class of 10 would be $400,000 alone. You don't think they could afford to pay her at least one of those students tuitions for the class. You would think so. I don't understand it. But um, anyway, back to a podcast called The Hollywood Confessional. (laughs) Um, The thing that I wanted to highlight about this episode, um, even though there are so many things to talk about, is the fact that in spite of everything they went through, this confessor still has such a wonderful, beautiful passion and respect for television. Yeah, they're not jaded at all. It's really inspiring to see that they've kept that soft, vulnerable center open and available to the world. I mean, that's what makes a great writer. That's right. We didn't get into it much in this episode, but I feel like a lot of it probably has to do with the showrunner they referenced who respects people's vulnerability. Absolutely. Shout out to that mystery showrunner who will probably never hear this podcast. And if they do, they probably won't realize it's about them. But hey, showrunners, if you're listening, just think it could be about you. You could be one of those people making Hollywood a happier place. Amen to that. That's all we've got this week, Faithful. Remember to keep us posted at Fess Up Hollywood if you're on the picket line or if you have a story to share. And next week, we will have the much-anticipated strike plan story. Next week? Uh, Did I say next week? I meant two weeks. Okay, we're doing the best we can here, people. (laughs) Talk to you all next time. The Hollywood Confessional is produced by Megan Dane and J.R. Zamorathal. Our cast for this episode, Claire Gruber, Shira Gorelick. Special effects provided by Zapsplat and Pixabay. Hollywood Confessional is a Ninth Way Media production. Follow us on socials at Fess Up Hollywood. <laughs>